the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. All right, moving to the third hour of the show, a Thursday. We're one day away from Friday, and that means you're only one day away from hearing... Thank God it's Friday! That's right. That's coming up. I can't wait to be able to play it and tell you it is the truth, that it is Friday. We are lucky today. Usually I get 25 minutes with most of my guests. I asked very, very nicely... If our guest coming up this hour would join us for the hour. I talked about his article Tuesday here on the show about uh, how to revamp the FBI, make it back to what it should be. And uh, uh, the person who helped me set this up got us uh, basically 55 minutes with Steve uh, Bradbury. He's the distinguished fellow in the executive vice president's office at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Before that, he was chief legal officer of the U.S. Department of Transportation. He got his uh, bachelor's degree from Stanford. He graduated magna cum laude from Michigan's law school, and he clerked for uh, Justice Clarence Thomas. Can't ask for a better pedigree than that. And Steve, thanks for joining us today here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Hey, Dave. It's really great to be here. All right. I'm going to just... What I did is I pulled up your article, and for me to try to go through your article again, because it took us a whole hour when I was just going on what you read, uh, what you had written uh, a couple of days ago. You have uh, another spot where you've got kind of a PowerPoint presentation. So I'm going to take those basic points, and I'm going to talk with you this hour about those. Is that all right? Terrific. Sounds great. Okay, so let's talk with the first one. Because you're the you're the first person I've heard that got uh, other than Jim Jordan that's gotten really really serious about this thing about the FBI. The Federal Bureau investigation has become a serious threat to the liberties of the American people. When you talk to people, you know I'm I'm an old codger. Okay, I've been around for a long time. To have somebody say that and say it that clearly is a, is an eye opener. Uh, to say that uh, the FBI our number one supposed law enforcement uh, bureau here in, in our country has become a serious threat to the liberties of the American people. Talk about that a little bit. Yes. Uh, it, it's unfortunate. I hate to have to talk about it, frankly. The FBI is a venerable institution, one that has uh, long had the respect of the American people, uh, high standards of excellence, uh, etc. Um, but you know, things have changed in recent years, very unfortunately. After uh, the atrocities of 9-11, uh, the FBI was given powerful new authorities uh, to in- gather intelligence for foreign intelligence purposes, you know, to protect the country from follow-on foreign attacks. That really became its primary mandate, its uh, prime directive, if you will, protect against potential future attacks. That made a lot of sense after 9-11. 
but in recent years, these intelligence gathering tools have been redirected more toward average Americans, mm-hmm. uh, Americans and the exercise of their free speech rights, uh, the exercise of their religious convictions uh, and parental rights over the education of their children. And it's really chilling what what we've seen and the information on this the public record on these abuses has grown. I mean, there's been a drumbeat of information coming out. We know about the very partisan politicized abuses of the FBI in the Crossfire Hurricane investigation in 2016 into the so-called Russia collusion, and the very different treatment given the Trump campaign versus the Clinton campaign at the time. That's been further exposed in detail in the Durham report. Uh, and that inc- that involves some abuse of the FISA process, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, with the Carter Page FISA order. And um, so serious abuses there. That continued after Trump came into office, efforts to undermine Trump by the uh, FBI. And it's continued all the way through, right up to the th- through the 2020 election, where uh, we now know from the Twitter files something that I think all Americans should find fundamentally chilling, and that is the FBI's monitoring of online speech, working with the tech companies to censor, shadow ban, suppress constitutionally protected speech of Americans online. Also, the efforts to suppress the story about the Hunter Biden laptop, which had a real effect on the 2020 election debates. I mean, that was... That was used by Joe Biden in the debate uh, to say well, that's Russian disinformation. And then, of course, the letter from the 51 former senior intelligence officials, uh, while the FBI had the laptop and knew for a fact that it was accurate and uh, not Russian disinformation, um, but led the tech companies to believe it was. And so they suppressed the story. So the story didn't get out. That's continued, as we know, during the Biden administration on some of the policy priorities of the administration with regard to COVID-19, the vaccine uh, mandates, with regard to the war in Ukraine, with regard to election integrity issues, the widespread suppression of dissenting speech under the guise of disinformation. Disinformation evidently means speech that dissents from the preferred policies of the administration in power. That's chilling. That's anti-American. And then the targeting of parents at school board meetings as potential domestic terrorists, the targeting of uh, American families who protest at abortion clinics out of religious convictions, while meanwhile, uh, violent Antifa rioters go scot-free. Uh, so the, the record of abuse has grown. We've also seen, uh, Dave, recently the reports from the FISA court, which have been declassified and unsealed, that show abuses of these very powerful intelligence gathering tools like the Section 702 program under FISA, which is supposed to be targeted at foreigners who are outside the U.S. Uh, But the FBI has been dipping into that database improperly. The FISA court reported they have dipped into it improperly more than 278,000 times 
to gather information about Americans. All right, let me example, let me let me stop you right yeah. there. All right, two hundred and seventy-eight thousand times, and nobody says anything. I mean, I'm I I'm stunned by that. People should be cooling their their heels in jail about this. And that tool, that Section Seven Hundred Two, powerful tool. And we're yes. not question. We're not questioning the importance of it. But you know that tool is up for reauthorization this year. It expires at the end of this year. And the question in Washington, one of the top questions, you know, in, on the docket in Congress right now, is what condition, if any, should Congress place on reauthorizing that powerful tool? And we have some specific suggestions in our report, in the third part of our report, about exactly that. And uh, this 278,000 times, it's outrageous. And, you know, some of that dipping into it has absolutely, I mean, all of it has no, no, there's no national security purpose. So that's why it's improper. But in many cases, it has nothing to do with any law enforcement investigation. Some some of those searches were related to the January 6th uh, riots. Some of them related to BLM protesters. Those were improper. But some of them were not for law enforcement at all. So, for example, some people at the FBI dipped into that database to get background information on maintenance workers who were coming into the FBI headquarters on people who were applying for internships or positions at FBI Academy. They also did some review in that database with regard to congressional donors, 16,000 congressional donors. So it is extremely concerning and outrageous. And so one of the suggestions we make is, why does the FBI need to have direct participation in the 702 program? Why should they have the ability uh, directly to dip into this database? If the intelligence community, and this really means the National Security Agency uh, or other elements of the intel community, see something in the database uh, that's collected on these foreigners' communications that shows suspicious activity going on in the U.S., they should be able to tip that information in an intelligence report immediately to the FBI. The FBI could follow up on it using more traditional tools, including individualized FISA. Uh, surveillance or, you know, a wiretap or other forms of law enforcement surveillance. But the FBI itself does not need to have direct access to that 702 database. So this is a fun, this would be a fundamental change. Uh, you know, there's no doubt this is a big deal. Okay, the executive branch is going to push back hard on this. The FBI is going to scream. But we think this is something Congress should take on as a condition of reauthorizing this this tool and the fact that it's up for reauthorization this year provides a perfect opportunity we think and real leverage in congress so you know you can you you can step back and say oh how are we ever going to get bipartisan agreement on a plan for an overhaul a complete rebuild of the fbi which should be done Uh, we understand that's a heavy lift probably more of a long-term project you really do need bipartisan support but but 702 has to be reauthorized this year. That's what the executive branch is insisting on. And so here we have a specific opportunity. If something has to happen in Congress, it's often the chance you have for real reforms to be put in place. They need to be specific, we suggest, on FISA. But that's something Congress uh, should do as just the bare minimum. 
When we come back, because we got to take a break here on my show, uh, I, I'd like you to, I can hear one of the arguments against, uh, you know, this whole 702 program of taking that away from the, the, the FBI to use it because they're going to say, well, we don't want to have another 9-11. I can hear it already. It's gonna, it's gonna, that's going to be the, the mantra that is out there. And I don't think that yep. this, this is a worryable thing for me, that uh, mm-hmm. as long as the FBI and the, the CIA can, and other intelligence groups can now talk amongst each other and share intel, I don't think we have to worry about 9-11. We'll talk about this when we get back. Steve Bradbury is our guest. They have put together a a new piece for the Heritage Foundation, and uh, this deals with uh, the FBI, and it's called How to Fix the FBI. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff here over the rest of this hour on the Dave Ellswick Show. Don't forget about PI Roofing. They're ready to help you take care of your roof. A lot of you still reeling from those uh, that tornado that came through West Little Rock, still waiting to get your roof fixed. There's still the, you know, I call it the blue plague uh, of all the blue tarps that you see on top of roofs over in, in West uh, Little Rock to this day. And it's just so much work and only so many people to do it. It's just taken a long time. PI Roofing can help you. They'll put you, get you in the queue so you, you can get that all taken care of. They'll help you out a lot as far as dealing with your insurance company, things like that. They also uh, do work inside your home so that can uh, the rain that came in and perhaps destroyed uh, drywall and things of that nature can be replaced and uh, repaired as well. All you need to do is do what I do. Call them at 501-707-3115. That's uh, 501-707-3115. Tell them Dave called, told you to call them. And they're going to take good care of you or visit them online at piroofing.com. All right, if you just joined us, Steve Bradbury is my guest for this hour. He has uh, penned an article for the Heritage Foundation called How to Fix the FBI. I talked about it earlier this week. I thought it was a very uh, interesting article. It went into depth about a lot of the problems that are occurring within the Federal Bureau of Investigation and uh, things that he and others have thought need to be done uh, to change the FBI. Uh, One of my favorite uh, senators is our senator here from Arkansas, and that's Tom Cotton, uh, Steve. And uh, he was, you know, all about uh, FISA courts and everything else as they first were brought in. Uh, I haven't talked to him. I haven't had the time to talk with him, and he hasn't had time to talk to me, basically, about this. I got to believe that some of the people that thought, Nothing could go wrong now are going, scratching your heads and going, how did this happen? Yeah, yeah, I I think you're right, Dave. Uh, You know, I worked in the Justice Department uh, in the Bush 43 administration. I headed up the Office of Legal Counsel that advised on some of these sensitive programs uh, in the war on terror. So I I was there at the origin of Section 702 and even before. And I know how important it is that we break down the artificial walls that were erected uh, prior to 9-11 between intelligence and law enforcement. And really, it was those walls that we put in place that helped contribute to the vulnerabilities we had on 9-11. 
And there's a lot to be said for breaking down those walls. And I think you're absolutely right when you suggested just before we went into the break that the key is the ability to share information in real time. And um, we try to make it clear in this report that uh, anything that's done with regard to reform needs to be careful so that it doesn't erect that wall again. Correct. There does need there does need to be the ability to share in real time intel information. So again, if for example the intelligence community, like the National Security Agency, is reviewing the collection of surveillance under Section 702, which again is targeted at foreigners located outside the United States. But the key is the surveillance is done on facilities in the U.S. That's because so much of the world's communication flows through the U.S., servers in the U.S., U.S. facilities. So the surveillance is done on the US, in the U.S., but it's targeted at foreigners. But if that surveillance collects communications with somebody in the U.S. who's doing something suspicious, so for example, a Chinese national at a university who has access to a sensitive database who's communicating with uh, military leaders in the People's Liberation Army over in Hainan in China, that's something we need to know and focus on. That information can be tipped in an intelligence report to the FBI in real time, and the FBI can follow up on it using ordinary tools of of intelligence gathering like a FISA order, an individualized FISA order, or other traditional tools of law enforcement. They can follow up immediately on it and take action if necessary. But the FBI, we think, doesn't have to, in the first instance, be directly involved in the 702 collection or the 702 uh, database. That's a big that's a big issue. There's going to be a lot of pushback, but that's something that we think should be a fundam- fundamental uh, reform. You know, we're not questioning the value of 702 or the 702 collection. We recognize the value, and 702 itself was an answer to some of the vulnerabilities and problems we had uh, that came to light through the 9-11 attacks, because it does enable very flexible, broad surveillance on facilities in the U.S. of those foreign targets. You can't use it to monitor, to target a U.S. citizen or lawful permanent resident of the U.S., no matter where they are in the world. It's only non-U.S. persons, foreign nationals outside the U.S. Um, But that's key. If we had had this tool on 9-11, it would have helped prevent the attack. Mm -hmm. So we recognize the importance of that. The question is, what should the FBI's involvement be? Because, of course, the FBI is our domestic law enforcement agency, and it is primarily focused on what are Americans doing in the U.S. or foreign nationals in the U.S. Again, 702's focus is foreign nationals outside the U.S. And so the question is, what does FBI need to do? You know, does it really need to have an active role at the outset in 702? We question whether that's the case. All right. So when we come back, and I, I take um, my my uh, half hour break. That's a hard break that I got to get to. When we come back, l- let's let's talk about this in depth. Because look, the FBI is a good idea. I don't have any any problem with having a federal bureau of investigation. But as the years have gone past, certain people ha- have you know misused it. It's it's very obvious they've misused it. And there's people that are still getting their money uh, for their retirement and everything else. And we know that 
they broke the law, and it, it well, it really ticks me off, to be honest, <laughs> as far as that's concerned. Steve uh, Bradbury is our guest. He's the Distinguished Fellow in the Executive Vice President's Office at the Heritage Foundation. He and others have put together this uh, thing about how to fix the FBI. We're going to talk further with him uh, when we come back. We've got uh, some local news that we've got to get to, Steve. Give you time to go warm up some coffee that may, you, you may ha- have or whatever, and then we'll come back. And I want to talk about the 702 program even more so. And, uh, you know, you say there's going to be pushback. Uh, I, I'd like to hear what you think as far as the success rate we might have in in removing some of the power. And I like to talk about why some people aren't in jail because it's by no doubt they broke the law. Let's come back and talk about that in a moment. Back with you here on the Dave Ellswick Show and our special guest Steve Bradbury with us from the Heritage Foundation. Whenever I want to know what's really going on, I go to Heritage Foundation, heritage.org. Uh, and uh, I check into what they're saying because uh, they've got the special people there. By special people, I mean people have been in government for a long time who have uh, saw this stuff uh, start many times and come to uh, maybe fruition in a situation that we don't want it to, kind of like Steve here. Steve started looking at uh, this material back at, during the Bush administration when it first started and we knew we had to do something different after 9-11. I think that we overreacted on some of the stuff that we did. You, you feel that way? I mean, because we took it was such a gut punch that we got back at 9-11. Steve, did we overreact in some ways? Well, Dave, you know, I don't feel that way because I was there at the time. I mean, I, I felt it was justified, uh, the, the Patriot Act reforms, the what, you know, led to the creation of Section 702. So I don't know that I would go that far. I know a lot of people do feel that way, and, and there, there was de- a, a lot of debate at the time. At the same time, you know, there was a general consensus. There really was a bipartisan unity in government after 9-11 about uh, what we needed to do to protect the country. Mm-hmm. I think the real, the real question is what has happened in the years since, and uh, have some of these authorities been redirected to improper uses? I think the answer to that is very clearly yes, unfortunately. And so the question is, do we still need them in the same form, uh, or do we need to make some fundamental changes that are important to protect the liberties of Americans? And I think there's a growing consensus there that, that we do. And the reauthorization of Section 702 is a very specific and very uh, pointed uh, opportunity to do that. Uh, there's leverage, um, you know, that Senator Cotton and others in Congress have right now because the executive branch desperately wants this tool to be reauthorized. And so I think you'll find if you talk to Republicans in Congress, particularly in the House, particularly conservatives, um, you're not going to find very many, if any, who are willing to say today that they would favor what they call, you know, a clean reauthorization of Section 702 with no conditions added. So I think the debate is going to be, okay, if we really need this tool, again, we don't question the need for it, but if we really need this tool, what what changes are going to be table stakes, are going to be, you know, prerequisites for reauthorizing it? That's where I think the debate is going to focus, and it's going to just 
accelerate and snowball between now and, and the fall and the end of the year when this thing comes up for reauthorization. Yeah, well, the other question that I have is what about Congress? I mean, it's their responsibility to oversee uh, the FBI and, and all the rest, and yeah. evidently they weren't asking the right questions as we were going along, or they were being lied to. What was what was happening there? Well, that's right, and you, you really see that in the hearing yesterday with um, the director of the FBI, Chris Ray, because the FBI, uh, I'll tell you, you know, the FBI is this sort of on an island. It's kind of a power unto itself. The FBI largely decides what its own agenda is, its own priorities, its own practices and standards, and it gives itself self-approval for, for things. And then it holds everything close to the vest. You know, we're, oh, we're a law enforcement agency and we're focused on national security concerns, so we can't talk to you about that. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, Senator, I understand the question, or member of the House, I understand the question, but you know, there's very little I can say about that because that's an uh, that's a law enforcement matter. And or we're doing an internal review, and I've got to see what that report says, and then I'll decide if I can share anything with you on that. It's a very buttoned-down sort of close to the vest black box type operation, and um, I really think fundamentally that needs to change. Uh, the American people right now have lost confidence, and they need to see more transparency. We don't need to interrupt and disrupt legitimate law enforcement investigations or national security cases. But let's bring the FBI director within the chain of command at DOJ. Let's take away some of the adjunct administrative functions that they perform for themselves, like the Office of General Counsel, Public Affairs, Ledge Affairs. Those can be provided by the Department of Justice. They should be just a bureau within the Department of Justice, completely subject to oversight and command and control, ultimate political accountability up to the president. And then second, let's have Congress create a new inspector general for the FBI, and let's mandate that that inspector general do a a deep dive review and a report to Congress on all of the past cases of improper collection of information about Americans. And then let's expose that and let's have the attorney general purge all of that improperly collected information from the systems and certify to Congress that it's been purged. And then going forward, let's put in place real standards for professionalism, for fitness, but also prohibitions on violating the constitutional rights of Americans indirectly, you know, monitoring them and working with tech companies to suppress speech, et cetera. Let's put clear prohibitions on that. And for enforcement, why not think about a right of action for Americans whose rights have been infringed, who've been the targets for harassment mm-hmm. by the by the agency, so that they can bring actions for civil damages against the agency, but potentially even against individual agents in egregious cases. You know, those kinds of civil damages actions are very effective enforcement uh, mechanisms. And you could also think about criminal prohibitions, criminal penalties, uh, and I'm not suggesting that that's not worth considering. Um, the reality is when you put criminal provisions in place, you got to very clearly define what the criminal line oh, is. Oh, yeah. Uh, because when you're talking about law enforcement agents, they, generally speaking, get what's called qualified immunity. 
And unless the legal standard is very clearly established and the violation of it is very clear, they get the benefit of the doubt. And and at the end of the day, those criminal penalties are, in fact, very rarely imposed uh, and approved by courts. So, yes, you can put them in place. I wouldn't count on that being the number one backstop. So I think oversight mechanisms, structural restraints on the exercise of power, you know, that's what our Constitution is built on, separation of powers, structural restraints. Those are the first bulwark for protecting the liberties of the people, is structural restraints. And I think that's the thing that should be thought about first. How, how has the whole political, uh, politicization of, of everything made this so much more difficult? Yes. Well, that is certainly, unfortunately, the case in Washington. That's the climate we live in. You know, these sorts of reforms to protect civil liberties, you would think that old-time liberals would jump on that bandwagon. They would say, you know, yes, sir, we got to protect the civil liberties of American speech. That's the most fundamental speech, free exercise of religion. These are the first freedoms. These are the most fundamental liberties uh, on which America is built. And that's, you know, our political system in our republic cannot exist without the First Amendment, without free speech rights. That's, that's so fundamental. You would think there'd be a general consensus to protect those and um, to stop censorship, for example, the targeting of religious expression, parental rights, etc. But in today's climate, uh, those on the other side who normally would be liberals supporting these civil liberties are claiming, oh, you're just trying to politicize the debate. You're, you're just trying to protect Donald Trump, for example. Um, and so they're now standing up for law enforcement. They're standing up for censorship of free speech uh, in the name of, quote, unquote, disinformation. Uh, what is disinformation? That's just another word for dissent from the government's preferred policies. It's speech the government doesn't want you to hear. Um, some of it may be foreign influenced and may be nefarious and we want to root it out, but you can't just use that as a supposition, as, a, as an excuse to monitor and then suppress and censor free speech, the exercise of free speech by, by Americans. Um, and Unfortunately, though, it has been politicized. It's all part of the finger pointing in in Washington. And so I'm not uh, I don't have the delusion of thinking that it will be easy to generate a consensus for some of these bigger, more sweeping reforms and rebuilding of the agency. But again, I come back to the fact that the the need to reauthorize Section 702 becomes a hook. And that's something that gives real leverage and will force people to come together uh, with a compromise. Um, it may not be everything, but it could be a just a minimum set of targeted reforms that will at least do do a lot towards stopping the abuses. So I, I sit and I, I listen. You get such great ideas here that I'm that I'm listening to what you're saying, and I know that you have a very strong and near working. Uh, ability with what you're talking about. But I worry about when I see the FBI say you can't look at a form dealing with Hunter Biden 
and and what was going on and it's not even it's not like it's uh, top secret or anything it's things that should be available to the american public to uh, basically look at and uh, then the F- the director of the fbi st- sits in front of a committee yesterday and says we haven't done anything to protect the biden family come on yeah. you can't don't be gaslighting me this is getting ridiculous well and it's coming to it's coming to a head because uh, as we understand it there's a hearing scheduled in July 26 in the district court in Delaware where a judge a federal judge is going to be asked to approve a plea agreement that we haven't seen yet the judge hasn't seen it and presumably this plea agreement will involve resolving all of the issues uh-huh could have been the subject of criminal charges with regard to all the tax years in question um, and when a federal judge approves a consent a plea agreement like that you know this question of is it in the interest of justice is this a reasonable resolution of the charges that could have been brought uh, how is that federal judge going to make that determination how is she going to feel comfortable accepting that plea agreement if there are these questions hanging out there that are very obvious what was the scope of the u.s attorney's authority to bring charges in all of the districts at issue Uh, was he inhibited from doing that Uh, whistleblowers have come forward and they're going to be testifying in a public hearing uh next week before uh, the committees in congress on these questions and so there are clear questions hanging out there and some contradictions between public statements that have been made by the attorney general by the u.s attorney and by these whistleblowers um on penalty of perjury and you would think that federal judge in addressing that plea agreement would want to know the answers to those questions uh before feeling comfortable and saying yes this is in the interest of justice to to accept this uh to accept this agreement we actually have a freedom of information act request for some of the key documents to answer these questions pending uh before the justice department and it's a subject of a of a lawsuit in the district court in the in dc um and congress is pushing through its oversight powers to try to get answers uh, to those questions but you know the FBI and the Justice Department say, oh, well, it's an ongoing investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that mean? Does that mean it's ongoing until the plea agreement is accepted and then it's all resolved and no longer ongoing? Um, well, then how is the judge going to be able to know really uh, whether that plea agreement is an appropriate resolution for, for all of the charges that could have been brought? For my listeners, uh, last question for you for the interview, and, and because uh, I'm, I'm going to run over in uh, my break here. Uh, and, and that's this. The Durham report was an eye-opener yeah. for everybody. And, Boy, was it. And then he gets to the end of it, and he says, but nobody should be held basically accountable is kind of what it said. And, and I got to think that not just myself, but most Americans went, say what? You know, they didn't yeah. understand that part of it. Well, 
I'm not going to be able to shed a whole lot of light on that question, Dave. I don't understand it quite either. Okay. Um, but I'll tell you one thing. One thing is important to remember. There is power in disclosure. There is power in oversight. And one, when these things come to light, when there is a report like the Durham report that exposes in detail, you cannot really argue uh, with what happened and the improper nature of it. The American people get outraged. It generates outrage. It generates some political accountability. Congress gets involved. The laws might change. So the individuals who may have done the improper things may not personally you know, find their comeuppance uh, or go to jail, but that doesn't mean that things it may, might not lead to very fundamental changes uh, in structures and legal authorities, and that's what we can hope for. That's really how the system is supposed to work in part. I mean, yes, there should be personal accountability and jail time for crimes, but uh, there also needs to be public exposure, a vetting yes. of these issues, and Congress needs to do its job of uh, responding through legislation, through oversight first, but then through legislation, if necessary, to make the changes that can avoid these problems in the future. And uh, that's really the focus of what we're looking at here is what ought to be done reform-wise, structurally, through legislation, going forward to stop the abuses and to protect the liberties of the American people. What could be more important than that? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all with you. And for our listeners, uh, Steve Bradbury's report is on heritage.org, heritage.org. And you need to take it, take you about an hour to sit and read this report and their, their ideas. And uh, does there seem to be some uh, traction to, to uh, get into this report and maybe we'll see some things happen in Congress? I think so. It's uh, getting a lot of attention. Uh, I love being on this program. Thank you so much, Dave. I will tell you, you're not the only program I've been on. I <laughs> bet you. Lot, lots of talk radio shows all around the country. There's a huge interest in this. I'm also, you know, we're getting outreach from staff uh, on the Hill to get uh, more information on it. I think there's a lot of sentiment to do these things, but so far there haven't hasn't been a lot of detail on what the plan should be and what it would look like. And so this is not the end of the debate. This is just a opening effort to put some ideas on the table to further the discussion, and hopefully it will snowball from here and something will actually happen. Well, Steve, as things start uh, getting, you know, the, the rubber starts hitting the road and they start making decisions, we'll, we'll turn to you to come on and, and tell us whether you think they're good or they're bad or they're just indifferent. But we appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dave. Very, very much appreciate it. Talk to you later. Steve Bradbury here on the Dave Ellswick Show. That was an interesting interview. I'm just telling you. Again, heritage.org. You can read that report, and you should uh, take you about an hour, read it. You can, you can look, find the time, but you need to read it and see what they're saying. Don't forget about Asset Protection uh, Wealth Management. Uh, they'll give you a free consultation, talk to you about your retirement plans, or if you are retired, how you can make that retirement uh, work better for you. They're at 11300 North Rodney Parham Road in Suite 320. 
Phone number is 501-225-9045. Get your time with uh, Gary Garrison to sit down and talk about all of uh, your retirement questions. He'll be back on my show on the 27th of this month. All right, I hope that you enjoyed that interview with Steve Bradbury. And uh, I hope that that, uh, the paper they put together at the Heritage Foundation about how to fix the FBI uh, gains some leverage and traction amongst uh, members of the uh, the House and the Senate. And uh, because it's something that's got to be done uh, kind of by the end of the year, some of the stuff, the 702 program especially. And like I said, I'm going to try to get on... uh, Senator Cotton about it. I want to hear what he has to say about it. Because he was real big about the Patriot Act back when it was uh, started. I want to find out if, you know, about the FISA courts and stuff, if he, he thinks things need to be changed. I think they need to be changed in this paper. What I found interesting, Seth, in this paper, they were talking about the FISA court. I thought that when something was filed with one of the judges on the FISA court, that it stayed with them until its end. That's not the case. Uh, A judge could be hearing it, and then something else comes up about whatever it is is being asked of the judge, and maybe at that point it goes to another judge, and they don't even have all the information that the first judge had to make the initial decision. That's got to change. It seems like that's got to change. So, anyway, there's, there's some very interesting things that are coming out about this, and I think there's a lot of people that are very concerned of what we've seen over the last eight to ten years about all of this, and and rightly so, rightly so. Especially, again, 702 program, again, was put in in effect to be able to go after, you know, foreign enemies of this country, and... I don't know if you heard that part of the interview when, I, when Steve said how many times the FBI had used it. 278,000 times. Holy cow. Uh, that, that, if you said 200, I said, oh, well, okay, I'd still been a little bit concerned, but 278,000 times, Seth? That's, that's chilling. I can't think of anything I have ever done 278,000 times. You know? Yeah, that you weren't supposed to do. Right, right, exactly. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's the thing. That's the amazing part of that. All right, Seth Mays is here. I want to get with, uh, we got a lot of things to talk about uh, here during this hour. And it's good to have you here. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, you bet. I think every time I come in here, it's always raining outside. I always have to come in <laughs> with an umbrella. I don't. I don't know what that means. But I don't. I don't either. I'm glad to see the rain. I'm glad to see that it's a steady rain. I don't want to see six inches of rain in three hours or anything yeah. like that. But I. Uh, I am enjoying seeing some some really good rain up in Cabot, where it's soaking into the into the ground again, and my uh, my newly planted crepe myrtles are. Are saying yes. Thank you. Yeah. It, yeah. Well, it's kind of like a Disney cartoon. You remember Disney cartoons? They've been, the plants have been going through uh, a drought or whatever, and it start raining, and their little tongues would stick up mm-hmm. in the air, and they're licking the the rain as it comes down. I, yeah, I know. Dave, get back with the, the the deal that we're talking about. Well, anytime you need your yard watered or plants or anything, just invite me back in studio. And yeah, that's happen. what I'll do. I'll, I'll ask you to come in. I'll just remember not to wash my car that yeah. day. All right, so let, let's start off with 
some very broad things to talk about. Uh, the uh, the Reagan-Lincoln dinner is coming up in the very near future. What day is that going to be? Yeah, so our largest annual fundraiser every year is the Reagan-Rockefeller dinner. Oh, Rockefeller. We've had uh, – that's all right. There's a lot of them. The Reagan dinners, the Lincoln dinners. There are some Trump Day dinners out there. Yeah. So it is hard to keep keep track with them. But we do – ours is called the Reagan-Rockefeller dinner. And this year that is August 18th. It's at the State House Convention Center here in Little Rock. And we're honored to have the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, come to Arkansas. It's going to be very interesting to hear what he has to say. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's it's a big deal for the Speaker of the United States Congress to go anywhere. And uh, it's a lot of effort to get them there. Uh, but I think to have some time with him for folks to hear directly from him, I think, is very valuable. You know, everything that we do day to day is cut up sound bites on TV or what you yeah. read on Twitter or Facebook. But to hear directly from somebody... In a, in a conversation in a longer format, I think is very instructive to hear what's actually going on. Well, he can talk about that second quarter of $65 million that he raised. Yep, yep. And then lay out the roadmap between how we take back not just the White House next year, which we all agree we need to do, but we need to keep the majorities as well. I mean, you know if you win the executive branch but you have nothing in the legislative branch, uh, we saw that in the later Trump years in the, in the administration, what happens, which is not a whole lot. So, That's right. It's important that we keep those legislative chambers, keep those legislative seats in the House, win back the Senate, and, of course, the presidency next November. So, From Well, you're on the executive committee. You talk to other uh, folks that sit up in, in, in the, the hierarchy of the state, uh, you know, Republican Party. What are you hearing from uh, your compatriots about uh, getting back into control of the, of the Senate in this next election? Yeah. The Senate map is encouraging, certainly compared to previous years. Uh, I think we've got a good chance there. I think a lot of that can be tied, too, to nationally the presidential race. You know, the ages of a split-ticket vote, uh, those are really just few and far between, with outside examples maybe of a Joe Manchin. But uh, he, again, is up on the ballot this time in West Virginia. And so I think there are far more opportunities for us to pick up seats on the map. I mean, I think it's nearly two to one, the seats that Democrat incumbents have up on the ballot as opposed to Republicans. And our seats are like, Republi- or, uh, you know, Texas, Florida, solidly Republican seats that if that's our biggest concern, we can far more be on the offensive going after those Democrats, either in Arizona, West Virginia, and elsewhere. Well, Arizona is going to be an interesting place. I mean, cinema is not in the best graces with the Democrats. Their primary down there is going to be interesting. If she holds on and gets to run, she's going to be, well, she's good chance we can take that seat from her. No, I, I think certainly. And the, the question there is, obviously, right now she uh, files as an independent candidate that caucuses with the Democratic caucus in the Senate. And the question then becomes, if she enters into this Democratic primary and loses to the progressive candidate, what does she do with her middle-of-the-road voters, right, the more moderate Democrats of the caucus that identify with her? And so I think, you know, that is, once again, should be a clear pickup. Candidate uh, quality matters a lot in any state, uh, but certainly in purple states that matters a lot. So, no, I definitely think that is one of those that is in that lean R column, given all of those dynamics. Okay, so how are things looking? Let me ask this question real quickly. Iowa just changed their caucus date. They were in early February. They're now in late January. Mm-hmm. They want to make sure they're first before South Carolina. Right. And a lot of that, just for viewers that haven't sort of paid attention to that minutia a lot, is led by the DNC. So President Biden, 
you know, if we think back to his last primary against Bernie Sanders, Sanders was winning Iowa, New Hampshire, and there was a lot of momentum there. It wasn't until Super Tuesday, really and truly, that Biden got a huge influx of delegates, predominantly from a lot of southern states. Yes. But that really started with the South Carolina primary, which was between Iowa and New Hampshire and before Super Tuesday. So Biden, sort of giving back to his uh, friends like Jim Clyburn uh, from South Carolina, has pushed for the DNC to recognize South Carolina, which is more racially diverse than Iowa and New Hampshire when it comes to electorate, has encouraged the, the DNC to move forward uh, the South Carolina primary for the Democrats. And as happens in every state, really, if one party who controls the state legislature decides to move the primary, it really doesn't matter that if the other state wants to do that or not. Right. You know, we here have moved uh, moved up from a May to a Super Tuesday primary a few years back and made that permanent in state statute. Uh, and in so doing, the Democrats in the legislature had to vote on that. But if they didn't like it, it's not as though they can go and say, well, we're going to still have a May primary. So with South Carolina, that's going to be set by the legislature, correct? Correct, correct okay. in statute. So with South Carolina moving up, there are some states, um, and Iowa may have this too, but I am fairly confident New Hampshire does. I mean, they've got in their state statutes that they have to be the first one. So if another state votes to go ahead of you, what do you do? Mm-hmm. And then you get into all sorts of very intricate details about delegate allocation And there are, for instance, in the RNC rules, if a state like Arkansas, let's say we wanted to go January 1st of next year. Okay. We're going to be the first one. Well, there are provisions in the RNC rules for carve-out states. That's what allow Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada to go as early as they do. Elsewise, everybody else pretty much can't go before March, which is why you see a lot of states like Arkansas in a Super Tuesday position in early March. Uh, and if you go before that date, you run the risk of losing delegates, either outright just half of your delegation or your delegation wow. may not be recognized at all. And I think that, and I'm a little foggy on this, I think it's Iowa or New Hampshire for the Democrats. The DNC has already said if they go forward with doing what they will do, their primary or their caucus in uh, Iowa, for example, that the DNC, they can do that, but the DNC will not recognize their delegates for the DNC convention next year. Uh, which sort of begs the question, why do it? Yeah, why right? even if, do it? If They're not going to pay any attention to what you. what you're voting for, right. So, um, but a lot of that is really focused kind of on the Democratic side, which doesn't look like it's going to have any primary. I think they've pretty well stifled any opposition for Biden. Uh, but our calendar for the primary schedule looks pretty consistent with Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, and then Super Tuesday, which includes us here in Arkansas. Well, having the dinner coming up here in the near, uh, very near future, by the way, uh, how do people get tickets to hear the speaker? Yeah, you can go get tickets on our website, ArkansasGOP.org. There on the homepage, you'll see the Reagan-Rockefeller banner at the top. You can also do ArkansasGOP.org backslash RRD23, Reagan-Rockefeller Dinner 23, and get your tickets there. One other thing that I think is just interesting, I like how things sometimes work out on the calendar in unexpected ways. That Friday night uh, will be Speaker McCarthy here in Arkansas. That next Saturday is, of course, our state committee meeting, and I'm sure we're going to jump into that We're going to talk about that. That following week is the first presidential debate, which seems like an eternity away, but it's next month. And Uh so to have the Speaker of the Congress at any time is a huge honor uh, and and a big logistical get for any state and state party. Uh, But to do so at that particular time when that debate will pretty well be shaped up and finalized, uh, I think is is something really special for people. I'll tell you something 
that we're working on. I was I was uh, contacted by Nikki Haley's people because I've been talking to their people to have her come in. I think she'd be interesting to hear from. And they just told me we can't do it in July, so it would have to be, you know, if we do this, it's going to have to be early August. I would love to have her come in and have McCarthy come in and, and everything that's going to be going on in August dealing with the Republican Party would be very interesting. Yeah, there will be no shortage of guests for you over the next year. I I'm looking like. <laughs> forward to it. I mean, I really am. I want to. I want to get uh, you know the, our, our other folks from South Carolina in here as well because I I really like him. Yeah. I like him. I like him a lot. So we'll see if that happens. And I I have some insight into the Trump campaign. There's a possibility we'll see him coming to yeah. our area as well. So there's there's a lot of things that are going to happen. I'm really excited about uh, all of that. Uh, the next thing we've got coming up uh, in August, uh, I can say for sure, on the 23rd, I don't know what pizzeria we're going to be at, but we're going to have a watch party so we can watch the first debate and see uh, how that goes. And we'll have to see if uh, former President Trump goes to that debate or not. All right, 19 after 10, Seth Mays is sitting here in my studio. we got a lot of questions to ask him. I want to ask about getting the chair uh, for the Republican Party here in Ar- uh, Arkansas, how that how that is taken care of, and uh, we'll uh, have that discussion when we come back on the, uh, the Dave Ellswick Show. Okay, again, uh, Seth, give them the address or the, uh, the, the link that they need to go to to buy their tickets. Yeah, for the... Make sure I'm turned on there. Yeah, for the Reagan-Rockefeller dinner, uh, again this year with Speaker Kevin McCarthy, that'll be Friday, August 18th, here in Little Rock at the State House Convention Center, which is a bit larger venue than we've had in years past, but we're going to be packing packing the folks in on this one. You can go to ArkansasGOP.org. There on our homepage, you'll see Reagan-Rockefeller dinner, and you'll have the ability there to buy tickets. If you prefer to have somebody else do that for you, Uh, or you just have more questions, you can always call our office, 501-372-7301. All right. What's on on the menu? You know yet? No. (laughs) (laughs) Rubber chicken. No, I'm just kidding. We had had gone through the menu, so I have a rough idea, but there were some things we're waiting to get finalized up. When you do a plate of dinner for 1,000 people, you start dealing in astronomical food costs. So we're working to get that refined. Okay, good. All right, so... uh, the day after that, on a Saturday, where are you guys going to have the uh, state convention? Is going to be there in, in uh, Bryan again? So it'll be the state committee meeting. And okay. the only reason I say that is because a state committee meeting in a state convention, I know they sound like very interchangeable terms, and I have been guilty of using those interchangeably, but they make a really big difference in who is actually a voting member showing up there. Okay. Uh, so the state committee, yeah, will be that Saturday morning after the Friday dinner. And that'll, again, be here in Little Rock. We're planning to have it at the RPA itself down there on 6th Street downtown. Oh, cool. But, as you know, and I'm sure we'll get into this, we have a chair election as well. Uh, Yes, we do. And because of that and the enthusiasm around that, we're looking at maybe some other ballrooms, hotel ballrooms in the same Little Rock area downtown where maybe we can have a bit more breathing room. Because could we get everybody stuffed into the room? Yes, Will that be enjoyable? And, no. And, and we'll, you know, I don't, I don't think that's what we want to do. Uh, the downside to that is there's a cost incurred, obviously, when you go to renting hotel ballrooms. And so just trying to make sure that we've got that uh, all lined up. But we'll have the call that will go out to the voting members with the registration and where that will actually take place, be it at the RPA or another 
you know, the Wyndham Riverfront or the Doubletree or something uh, that's relatively close by to there. And the State House itself, too, because a lot of folks will be staying over downtown from the dinner the night before. So they can just stroll over. Right. And we don't want to say, now drive down to the Benton Event Center. Right. right. So uh, that's the thinking. But, again, that will be Saturday, August 19th. That will start at 10 o'clock. And voting members of the state committee, because I get that question a lot, is the county chair for all 75 counties. Each county has a state committee man and state committee woman. So you do 75 times 3. That gets you a bulk of folks. Anybody, any member of the Arkansas General Assembly that's a Republican, obviously, uh, is a voting member of that as well. So that's your state senate and your state house. There's another 29 and 82, respectively. And then you have uh, some other heads of auxiliary organizations. So if you're a chapter chair of the Arkansas Federation of Republican Women or college Republicans, uh, young Republicans, you have those are voting members of the state committee, as well as members of our executive committee. So folks like Iverson Jackson, the head of the um, AACA, would be a voting member of the state committee in well. So there's a lot of folks that have membership into the state committee. It's so we're looking a, at, what, about 500 people? Over 300, not quite 500 okay. yet. All right. and it, it could touch 400 if everybody shows up, uh, but that's a lot to ask for for 400 people to show up somewhere on so a Saturday. So will they be the ones that determine who's going to be the state chair? Yes, those will be the voting members of the state committee. That's the election for uh, chair of the RPA itself. And, of course, we kind of just jumped over a little bit of that but what got us to this point is as your listeners will probably recall was the appointment of our former chair cody holland to the to arkansas supreme, supreme court, court. Yeah. right and so under our rules within 60 days we need to hold a state committee meeting uh, to vote on a successor to vote on a new chair and we already had this state committee meeting on the books naturally for the summer uh, we also have to approve our delegate selection process and some other business matters at this meeting so it was already on the agenda. It fell within the 60 days, and so I think that's the most reasonable time to do it when folks were already anticipating and have the date saved uh, at that time. So it'll be a very busy weekend for the Republican Party of Arkansas. All right. We've got just a couple of minutes to go uh, to the bottom of the hour. I'm, I'm going to keep stuff here until the top of the hour, just so you know. But the uh, question that I had about uh, the chair uh, once the chair is uh, elected, they're going to have a lot of stuff that they got to catch up on very, very quickly. Yeah. So if we can go prospectively for that new chair, the, the new person, and all that they're going to need to get caught up on. But we sort of had this, if I go back a couple weeks ago, when Cody Holland was appointed on a Monday, uh, that afternoon, our interim chairman, who also serves as the first vice chairman for the party, John Park came down uh, during his lunch break to the party headquarters, and we sort of did a crash course in everything that the party is doing and right. that the chair needs to be aware of for the next six weeks and later down the road. And I sort of relate it to people say jokingly after somebody's elected president, you know, they're sworn in on the South Lawn there, they walk back inside, and that's probably where all of the ABC department heads throw you in a room and say here's what you really need to know to be president (laughs) they have some sort of grand debriefing right and i sort of felt like that with john park a little bit there was a sort of let's bring you up to speed because his first vice chair he's also chairman of our budget committee so he's he's very aware of a lot of happenings of the party but not so much the minutiae and behind the scenes stuff because even after we do this dinner on friday night august 18th in a state committee meeting saturday the 19th we have to be on the ground in Milwaukee as members of the RNC the following week where the first debate is going to happen, but it's also an RNC summer meeting as well. 
Uh, so there's a, a lot uh, that John Park had to get caught up on, as anybody would. And then we'll repeat that process again uh, with the new chair, whoever that, that individual is. Well, I, I intend to have you on as often as I possibly can. Like after that first debate, I'm going to expect that you'll come on and tell us what you found out at the meetings and things of that nature. Uh, right now, though, we got to take a break, and we'll come back and we'll talk about uh, everything else that we've been alluding to here on uh, the Dave Ellswick Show. Stick around. News is next. Show. Don't forget about Hillcrest Designer Jewelry, over 3,000 Cavanaugh Suite E. Eric Coleman wants all of you guys out there that are going to ask your beautiful women to marry you and you want to you need an engagement ring come see him first he'll save you 20 to 30 percent off the top uh, over any other jewelry store here in little rock as well as uh, you know if you need wedding bands because you're going to get married this summer he can save you a lot of money there look if you can save 30 percent on your wedding bands and you save 30 percent on your engagement uh, you know band or whatever uh, you save some money because uh, rings ain't cheap. I'll just tell you that, guy, you guys that are getting married, I'll tell you that. Uh, you save 30%, you got some extra money for your honeymoon. Keep that in mind uh, as well. They're open Monday through Saturday, 10 to 6, and talk to Eric Coleman. He'll, he'll be there at the store. You can walk right in and uh, talk to him about whatever it is that you need. Hillcrest Designer Jewelry. With that in mind, let's get back to talking with Seth Mays. Uh, again, I was just finishing up a hillcrest designer jewelry they're open through monday through saturday 10 till 6 so i wanted to get that out uh, to everybody all right seth let's talk money for just a moment yeah and and then i'll bring up the the people who are trying to run uh, for chair uh, of the uh, state republican party first of all the, the thing that i need to know is uh, tell people what the money I- is used for that the the, co- the committee puts together yeah. So we raise money in a variety of different ways. One of those will be the Reagan Rockefeller dinner that we have coming up on August. Another way is Tusk Club, which is sort of our uh, larger annual donors every year that donate to the party. And then we have some bigger sponsorships as well, what we term the business council and then our capital club members as well. All of that money is what we would term internally as the operational money that goes into our operations account. That's what pays me. That's what pays the other folks at the headquarters. That's what keeps the lots on. You know, all of our reimbursement for mileage, for the events that we do, all of that stuff comes out operationally. Everything that we do for candidates, be it in the form of direct advocacy, uh, comes from filing fees. So when candidates go and file at the state party and the state party accepts that money, that money doesn't even enter the same bank account as our operational money. It's kept entirely separate because we spend it for entirely different purposes. And the largest contributor year after year inside elections in the state of Arkansas is the Republican Party of Arkansas. And we look to help every uh, everybody that, that's under our banner as a candidate that needs help in the general election. Obviously, we don't get engaged in primary races. We trust voters to make those determinations at their local level. Uh, But once we have a nominee, be it for a state house or state senate seat or a statewide official, we want to get behind and help that person. And the same thing works for presidents as well in presidential years. Now, there are different pots of money for that. So let's say that I take a filing fee from Dave Ellswick for state rep. And let's say it's $100. All right. And let's say, Dave, I want to run, the party does, a mail piece, or we want to do some digital advertising for you, and we want to put your picture 
up there with, say, Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or whoever our nominee is and say, vote the Republican ticket. Right, Dave Ellswick, he's a Trump Republican, vote for him. Your $100 filing fee is great, but you are a state candidate and that is state money. And I can't use a dime of it to promote something that has a federal candidate on it. And that's the distinction between state and federal dollars. So last cycle, before I was the executive director of the state party, I was what we term the victory director. And that's the person that oversees our ground effort to knock doors, make phone calls, do those things to get candidates across the finish line in our legislative districts across the state, kind of in all the major areas. In that work, myself, even though much of the work I was doing was for you know, say a Trent Minner in Conway or a, you know, a legislative candidate, because there were federal candidates appearing on the ballot, uh, the FEC sees that we are engaging in promoting voter turnout in a federal election. So a percentage of my salary, as well as all of our field staff as well, we had four or five field staffers around the state whose full-time jobs were to recruit volunteers and meet our metrics on doors and phones and other things, a percentage of our salary had to be paid with federal dollars, even though I was not out there really advocating in any way for a major federal candidate. Senator Bozeman, of course, was on the ballot at that time, and we did work for Senator Bozeman, but we were more so targeted on the state level, which is where I think the state party is going to make the biggest difference in the legislature and how we got up to 82 members in the House. Mm-hmm. And so that's, it's, it is a confusing process. It takes up a lot of our time on the back end making sure that we're accounting for everything correctly because that's the type of thing if you get wrong the fec comes after us and that's where the chair of the party and the treasurer of the party could even face jail time depending if the penalty is is stiff enough and so it's making sure that we do everything to keep our eyes dotted and our t's crossed between state and federal dollars but again that's funds separate from the actual operational funds itself you know i heard somebody say one time Well, gee, they have that nice headquarters, and it is. I've heard from many folks, including the chair of the RNC, and we have different vendors that come into town, and that's what they do for a living is jump party to party, and they remark at how great our party headquarters is. And it really is probably the nicest in the country of any party on either side. I agree. But the funds for that headquarters, again, were not filing fees. They were not even the folks that contributed as Tusk Club members to the party, the building fund, and this is back when Dual Webb was chair, was mm-hmm. an entirely separate undertaking, separate from all of these other accounts. It, too, had its own separate account, the building fund. And, of course, that building is now paid off. So uh, we have a lot of different pots of money. That's something our finance director, Ashley Wells, I mean, that's almost her entire job is just making sure that everything we do in those accounts meets the standards that we have to with the FEC if it's federal dollars and making sure that everybody, if they ask, hey, if I'm going to donate as a Tusk Club member, where is that money going? That we can tell you directly what that money does for us at the state party. All right. So keep in mind that uh, money that uh, comes from filing fees are dispersed amongst the candidates, correct? Correct. Up right. to what we can at the maximum limits. And then we have other work that we do, which is called non-advocacy work. You might see some of that. I might not say vote for Dave Ellswick for state rep, but I might say Dave Ellswick is a great conservative, and his opponent is a radical liberal. Yeah. And I don't use the word vote. I don't have a call to action. That would just be seen as educational purposes. So there are some ways to, I don't want to say get past the limits, if you will, because you're still limited in direct action what you can do. Uh, But there have been instances, particularly in our more purple seats in the state legislature, 
where we want to do everything we we can to help get somebody either across the finish line or hold on to a seat like a Carlton Wing or a Carolyn Brown here in central Arkansas. All right. So with all of that said, the position that you're in, I'm going to move in talking about filing fees. Yeah. That's not determined by you, correct? No. So the filing fees in our rules are determined by the state executive committee. And I'm not on the state executive committee. I used to be back when I was the head of college Republicans for the states, uh, for this state, back when you and I had first met. Right. That was a voting position on the executive committee. But the executive committee is our elected district chairs, the elected district reps. Those are those eight positions are all elected by our congressional district committees. You then have uh, the leadership that's elected by the state committee. That'd be your chair, first and second vice chairs, treasurer, secretary. Uh, the chair is non-voting in that capacity in the event of a tie they vote you also have on the executive committee all the heads of your auxiliary organizations that's where when i was on the committee that was college republicans young republicans have a seat there the aaca has a seat republican women have a seat the majority leaders both the house and the senate here in arkansas have a seat on that committee and there's probably some that i'm that i'm forgetting but it's a couple dozen voting members on that committee okay they are the ones who determined here recently to jack up the, the 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 fee paid to run for congress correct correct yes okay you didn't vote on that correct correct okay but i'm so i'm, I'm going to ask you did you hear the discussion that went on about why did they raise the rate on uh, for congressional districts yeah so in, a, in addition to obviously the voting members of the executive committee being there as a member on party staff i was there as well and you know, I'm always hesitant. Well, I'm not just hesitant. It's just policy that I have never to talk about private discussions or that people have. You know, even since that meeting, I've had members of the executive committee on both sides of that vote call me and opine uh, with thoughts about that vote and about the future. And I want any member on the executive committee to feel like they can come to staff and bounce any idea that they have off. But I think I can describe at least what the majority opinion was on that day. Part of it had to do with the discussion that we just had about federal money, right? The only way that we get federal money is from those federal filing fees. And the counterpoint that people have often raised is, well, if we got into a situation where the party needed to spend more money, let's take, for example, say the second congressional district. That's more purple, if you will, than the other three, though it's, I would say it's certainly solidly conservative for us. But let's say we got in a scenario where we needed to, as was thought at the time when Clark Tucker was running against Congressman Hill that we would need to stick in some money from the state. Mm -hmm. Well, if we're going to do that again, I can't use anything. We could raise $3 billion off the Reagan Rockefeller dinner. I couldn't spend a penny of that to advocate for a member of Congress or a prospective member of Congress in a federal race. So everything that we do advocating for federal candidates has to come from federal dollars. And that primarily comes, and for us, only comes from the filing fees. Now, the counterpoint to that would be if we got into a situation where we needed more money to advocate for that federal candidate, or let's say if our state reps wanted to run advertisements with President Trump or whoever on there, but again, a federal candidate, Mm -hmm. all of that still has to be federal as well. That is not a situation we had last cycle because we were not in a presidential race. But let's say we got in a bind, there's a bad internal poll that one of our candidates, congressional candidates, federal candidates is down by five points. Whoa, we never thought we'd be in that situation. People would come to the RPA then and want us to jump in and help, and to the extent we could, I think we'd do that. Uh, But if we don't have the federal dollars to do that, we hit a ceiling on that. And then people say, well, the RNC 
that's the Republican National Committee, or the NRCC, which is the congressional arm, those folks will come in to help our, if we if we needed it. If we got in the bond, those are the folks that come in and help out with money. And I hear that. The problem is I've been around here too long to know not only has that never happened, I would not be optimistic that it ever would happen. Because and I and I understand the reason why. If you go to the NRCC and you pull a list of their top competitive seats, the first twenty, thirty five seats are gonna be seats in Orange County. They're gonna be upstate New York, they're gonna be around the suburbs of Miami, they're gonna be in the real purple areas. I mean purple for us in Arkansas is still red in That's in right. other states. Most other places. And so I am not optimistic at all that we will receive federal help from those bigger entities. But up to this point, it hasn't been help that we've needed, and we've been able to do it ourselves uh, and protect not just our incumbents, but our prospective new candidates as well uh, when they're the nominees of our parties. We've been able to run victory operations that I think have been sufficient and have been a net positive for all of those candidates, from including presidential campaigns in those years all the way down to, well, I would say state house, but we got involved in some school board races too here. All right. I want to continue. we got one last segment. And the uh, question I've got is, how much is too much? We'll, we'll ask that question of, of Seth uh, here on the Dave Ellswick Show when we come back, because there's a lot of people saying, well, you're taking the average person from getting a chance to run for office because they've got to write such a big check. We'll talk about that when we return here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Sure. All right, let's finish it up. Okay, so they're going to double the fee for running for Congress. They're going from 15 to 30, if I'm not mistaken. Is Correct. that right? Yep. The executive committee had voted to increase that filing fee. Uh, the rest, the presidential, state house, and state senate remain the same. Uh, they didn't take any action on the U.S. Senate seat. Of course, we. this is sort of our body year. Neither Senator Cotton's seat nor Senator Bozeman's seat is up for election this cycle. So with that said, if I go back to when um, – I'm, I'm trying to think. Dennis Milligan mm-hmm. was party chair. I don't know this off the top of the head. You might know the top of it. What would, what would it cost you to run for uh, a congressional seat? Any idea? I, I couldn't tell you. If I told you what I was doing when Dennis Milligan was chair of the party, you'd just laugh. Okay, so they were just changing your diapers? I was in middle school at oh, the time. Oh, okay. Well, much, that, then you, <laughs> that part you weren't doing. But here's the bottom line. I can tell you for a fact that it was a lot less a much smaller check to write because most people didn't feel like you had much of a chance of winning as right. a Republican. Right. It's it's not like it, it is today. That started changing in 2010. I mean, we're talking 13 years ago. And, well, and now that, now the, the Republican has a decided advantage of winning whatever he has been got through the primary. He's the candidate. He's going to win. That's basically yeah. what you look in at. In 2010, I mean, that was a year, as you'll recall, uh, you know, Jim Keat, for example, yep. former state senator, had announced, I believe, for lieutenant governor and had to be convinced to get into the governor's race because to have ballot access for us to even be a recognized party, you have to get 3%, at least in the gubernatorial mm-hmm. election. So if we didn't have a governor candidate, then we'd have to go out and get petition signatures the next cycle to get on the ballot, which we could do, but that's effort and money. There's a lot of party expense tied into into getting that done. So uh, you're right. It, it was a bit different environment back in 2010. you got to understand, when push came to shove and it wasn't, it wasn't cool to be a Republican, that cost was a lot less. 
you know, I, I've I've read letters from people and all kinds of stuff, and they they say, well, look, the Democrats are only charging twenty five hundred bucks. That's because they don't have a, a a snowball's chance in hell, basically, of being elected. Right. That's the right. reason. And we used to be kind of in that scenario as well. Ourselves had a rough time, you know, recruiting any candidates at all. You know, I recall stories. I know from when Chairman Webb was chairman of the party back when we were a minority party in the state, uh, concerns about getting candidates to file for the office of attorney general. And there were some instances where we did not. You know, I think back under Chairman Milligan, Dennis Milligan, I believe it was prior one year where we had similar with Tom Cotton here most recently where the opposition party didn't even field a candidate to run against him. Right. That happened with Pryor back when we were in the minority and it happened with Cotton with the Democrats a couple of years ago. So, you know, it, this is – and and how much is too much? I mean, I know that that's – everybody – I got I just got a, a text. $30,000 is too much for a congressional seat. I don't know if it's you – know, if the people are willing to pay it, then it's not. Yeah. My job as executive director is whatever decision is made by the executive committee is to make sure that that decision is enforced, whatever it is. So whatever budget we're given – is the budget that me and my team will put into action to get folks elected to make sure that our electors go for a Republican president and that all of our folks down the ballot are successful in their races as well. And that extends down to school board and even the, and I'll use air quotes here, the nonpartisan races themselves. (laughs) And, you know, this is now with our interim chairman and the election coming up for the new chair, the new chair will be, and this just sounds ridiculous to say, will be the fifth party chairman that I've worked for at the state party um, over I think three different stints over four positions and they all have their own different ways of leading. I'm sure that will be true for our new chair, whoever that is as well. And our job is to make sure whatever that vision is, is to put it into action and make that a success, make that person a success so that the party's a success. All right. With that in mind, let me ask you uh, who uh, is running for the chair. So I am aware of two announced candidates. It's not to say there isn't another out there that maybe we're not aware of or couldn't happen, but I think most people are fairly confident these two announced candidates will be the ones uh, that we all hear from at the state committee meeting on August 19th. Uh, I believe the first candidate to send out uh, or start contacting people about running is Joseph Wood. Uh, Dave, I know you know Joseph very well. He's the Secretary of Transformation and and Shared Services for Governor Sanders former Washington County judge and also uh, treasurer of the state party. And then we also have running uh, Sarah Dunklin. She's the chairwoman of the first congressional district. Uh, That's Eastern Arkansas. If your viewers aren't uh, all that familiar with that's what I belong to. Right. Right. uh, With what districts are where. And she's also a former county chair of DJ County and has been involved in the party uh, for a number of years. Both she and Joseph have. I think back to when I first got involved in the party and those were some of the first faces that you can remember meeting as you traveled across the state. Yep. You got two good candidates, and that's what you need, at least two, you know, good candidates. And, yeah, you got those, and we'll know who's going to be the party chairman coming up, and what's the, what's the date? Yep, August 19th. August 19th. That's not that far away. How long do they have before they can announce that they want to run for chair? Is there a, a date? To cut off? There is a filing deadline in our party rules for any candidate for state chair to submit their intent to the state secretary 20 days before 
uh, that announced date. So you still got the remainder of this month until that time happens. But I know that's something the interim chairman, John Park, and I will be working with, both with the announced candidates that we have out there to make sure that they're aware of all of that, but then also anybody prospectively that may want to run. We'll make sure to work with all of our state committee members that they are all aware of of what that is because that is information that we'll include in the call for that meeting. So when we send out the call, we'll not just include both candidates running because that will be item number one on the agenda at this point, uh, but also the proposed rules for our delegate selection process, which mirrors our process for the previous cycles. Uh, but we have to, again, vote on that every year, update the dates in there and so forth. So all of that will be information that we'll provide to members of the state committee And I think that's our goal is just to make sure that everybody has all the information that they can and then let the voting members make their decision. And then, like I said, our job as state party staff is to then go forward and execute that vision. All right. Pleasure to have you on here. Thank you. Anytime. By the way, on the filing fee situation, because it's it's caused some problems, uh, will that be decided when the committee gets together as a whole? That is something that is voted on on our executive committee in the party rules. So okay. it's the state executive committee that that sets that. And I certainly uh, am aware of the excitement out there on that issue. I have been the recipient of a many of a phone calls and texts. Right. Right. <laughs> Appreciate it, Seth. Thanks for coming Thank you, in. Dave. We'll get you back on in the near future. It's the Dave Ellswick Show. I'll see you tomorrow, 7 o'clock. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.